Good morning, Prodigal. We are so glad you decided to join us today. We are in week two of our series, Big, Big Reputation. Reputation. Last week was awesome. If you missed it, check it out on the app. We can't wait to hear what John has for us today. Our spring session of small groups launched last week, but today is the first week for our Prodigal Youth Blitz group. So if you are a teen and you want to go see Pastor Addison after service, they're going to be meeting in River Park at 2 p.m. today. If you weren't with us last week, we announced some important upcoming dates. So make sure you head to the app, check out the events tab, and put all those fun upcoming events in your calendar. We started accepting applications for our summer internship. So if you are a teen or a young adult and you're interested in hanging out with the prodigal staff all summer, head to the app or the website to check out the application. It's not too late to sign up, so go check it out. We know summer can get super busy, so we want to make sure you guys don't miss out on our kids camp this summer. It's happening July 10th through the 13th and registration is open now. So head to the app or the website to get the early registration discount. If you'd like to give to Prodigal Church, there's a couple ways you can do so. You can give in the lobby on your way out of church at the giving boxes or the giving kiosk. You can also give on our app or our website. We've added a new dropdown to sponsor an internship, so if you wanted to sponsor one of those awesome summer interns, you can do that there. Thanks so much for joining us for week two of Big Reputation. Have a great Sunday, church. Christians are the worst. The condemnation of culture, a lack of care for the poor. Judgmental, bigoted, homophobic, elitist, and hypocrite. That's what the world thinks of Christians. Have you ever heard of the term genericide? Okay? It's what happens when a product becomes so common that the name becomes synonymous with any cheap generic version of the original. Okay? Here's a couple examples. If you go to a restaurant in the South and you ask for a Coke, the waitress will ask you which kind. Because the word Coke is often used to refer to any caramel colored soft drink, no matter if it's Coca-Cola or Pepsi or Dr. Pepper. Uh, the same thing has happened with Kleenex. You might say, could you hand me a Kleenex? Even if the box is clearly labeled, great value facial tissue. This isn't a Kleenex, okay? This is sandpaper for your face, okay? One more example. What is this right here? Yeah, a Q-tip, right? No, no, no. This is a cotton swab. A brand name that once referred to a specific product is now used for any generic reproduction. That is genericide. And I believe the same thing has happened with Christianity. We have genericited Christianity. The word Christian originally referred to little Christ, okay? These little Jesuses, a Christ follower. Uh, and nowadays, as you saw in our opening video, it often refers to something else. Uh, the church has a big, big reputation. reputation. Big and throughout this sermon series, we're exploring what we're known for, why, and what we can do about it. Last week we looked at hypocrisy, and today we're going to look at self-righteousness. And here's the definition that we're going to be working with, okay? Self-righteous. 
Having or characterized by a certainty, especially an unfounded one, that one is totally correct or morally superior. Christians very often have this certainty that we are totally correct and morally superior. Okay, this is different than judgmentalism. More on that next week. Judgmentalism is about what we think of them. Self-righteousness is what we think about us. Now, in our sermon bumper that features Taylor Swift, there are clips of people describing what the world thinks of when they hear the word Christian. And for this series, I have spent a lot of time on the internet, okay? Researching why people are leaving the church, why people sometimes hate Christians. And in my research this past week, I have found some responses from other Christians, okay? Okay, these are not made up. These are 25 reasons why people hate Christians. And it was written by a religious Christian, okay? Uh, number one, the world hates us because we are not part of the world. Two, we're hated because we follow Christ. Three, the world hates God and we remind them of the God that they hate so much. Four, the darkness always hates the light. Five, people hate the truth. Number six, the world hates us because of our mission. Okay, in this one, there's, there's a little explanation, right? Unbelievers love their self-righteousness. We have to tell people who think they're good and have been doing the things that society thinks will take them to heaven that their good works mean nothing and that their good deeds are just filthy rags. Thanks for the explanation. Number seven, because they believe in lies. Eight, they mistake love for hate. We're gonna go rapid fire here and skip a few. The world thinks Christians are stupid. Uh, they hate us because we're not doing evil with them. And then this one had another little explanation, okay? They believe that we think that we are better than non-Christians, which is not true. We're not better, we're just better off. They continue, they hate the Bible, they're ignorant and they refuse to learn. The ones who hate Christianity are the ones who admire the devil. 21, they hate the gospel. And finally, because of the actions of fake Christians or immature believers, okay? That's why the world hates Christians, everybody, okay? It's not because of us, it's because of them. It's not because we're self-righteous, it's because they're self-righteous, okay? This is more ironic than the Alanis Morissette song, okay? This actual webpage that's really real, dedicated to explaining why Christians are hated in the world, is just such a perfect example of exactly why we are often hated in the world. No need to ask questions of us. We're totally correct and morally superior. The exact definition of self-righteousness. Let's let Jesus kind of get in on this conversation. Luke chapter 18. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Again, this is just an amazing parable. It's so subversive. But even the context of the parable is just off the charts. Verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And then the hero in the story, okay, the exemplary person in this story, is a terrible tax collector. And then the villain in the story is the upright and morally superior religious man. This is so scandalous in the ancient world. You see, we've read these stories before, okay? We know that Jesus critiques the Pharisees and the religious leaders more than anyone else. But in the ancient world, this wasn't the case, okay? The Pharisees, they were the good guys. The tax collectors, they were the bad guys. And Jesus flips the script in the most holy place on earth, the temple, where the very presence of God dwells. And now the good guy becomes the bad guy, and the bad guy becomes the good guy. Okay, this would be crazy talk in the ancient world. And yet, we still need these words today. This is the message the church needs to hear. And we are the church. Our self-righteousness has lulled us to sleep. And the Spirit of God is trying to wake us up. It's like in the movies, when someone is kind of in and out of consciousness, and someone is kind of pleading with them, come on, stay with me, stay with me, look at me, look at me right here, come on, stay with me. And they slap their face a little bit. This is exactly what Jesus is doing for us right now, okay? Wake up, okay? You're sleeping, you're numb. Your eyes are closed to what's going on around you. Your eyes are closed to the people that I'm sending your way. Wake up. And this reputation that we have as Christians, okay? It's a way of God slapping us, okay? Wake up splashing water on us. He's using a defibrillator, okay? Clear. He's trying to wake us up. He's trying to wake me up. And he's trying to wake you up. Notice in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, one of them knows he's a sinner. The other pretended he wasn't. Christians, it's okay that we don't have it all together, okay? That's okay, okay? That we're, it's okay that we're sinners just like everyone else around us. It's okay. It's honest. And we have big sins, right? You and I, we have big sins. Not just job interview sins, okay? You know what I mean by job interview sins? You know when you go into a job interview and they ask you, tell me what your greatest weakness is, and you say something dumb like, well, I care for people too much. I work too hard. Sometimes I'm just too much of a team player. And I think at the church, we do this too with some of our sins, right? You're in a small group or a church and someone asks, you know, hey, you know, what are you struggling with? And you say something like, well, I've been trying to read the Bible through in a year and I've missed a few days. You know, can you guys pray for me with that? If that's your struggle, you are Jesus, okay? One of the things that we have done in the church is we've made a list of acceptable sins, sins that aren't so bad that we aren't unwilling to share with people of God, but bad enough to where we actually feel like we're actually confessing. In this church, 
I know many of you, okay? And I just wanna say, the problems that are facing us as a community and as Christians are not that we skipped a few days in our Bible reading plan, no. We've got some real problems. We've got some real addictions. We've got some real struggles. And that's okay. You're not the only sinner here. And if we wanna change our big reputation, We've got to start being more like the tax collector in the presence of God than the religious man in the presence of God. Self-righteousness, it's a sneaky sin because it feeds off the good. So often, we have no idea that we're even being tempted towards this path of self-righteousness. In June of 2000, uh, I spent uh, that month in Mozambique, southeastern Africa. We traveled in the back of trucks through African terrain, and we were headed to this village in the middle of nowhere. And we had to cross a crocodile-infested river in a tree bark canoe. Okay, I got the pictures. It was awesome. When we finally arrived to this village, it was time to eat, and we had to fish for our food. Now, I'm not a fan of seafood, river food, Okay, whatever we were gonna catch, I wasn't going to eat. So some people in our village had dug up some worms and we get to the river and they're not biting anything, right? The fish aren't biting, they're not catching a thing. Then one of the Africans hands me a machete and says, dig for crickets. And I go, huh? And then he points to a hole in the sand and says, there is a cricket in there, dig and get it. So I start digging with the tip of the machete. And then there's this cricket hole that kind of just goes like down and around. And so I would dig a little bit and then I kind of feel to make sure I was on the right path. And then I kept digging. And then finally I touched something, okay? Uh, I touched a, a prickly little leg with my finger, okay? And I was like, uh, I think it's down there. What do I do now? And he says, grab it and pull it out. So I grab it by the leg. And what I pulled out was like a mutant cricket, okay? No joke, it was the size of a computer mouse. It looked like a baby alien, okay? Here's a photo of a few of these crickets, okay? That is a man's hand that's holding it, okay? Here's another one where the cricket is eating a carrot, okay? What? Then the African man grabbed the cricket, put a hook through it, flung it into the river, and then within minutes, we caught dinner. And it was a great dinner that I did not eat. This African fisherman knew something that we didn't know. He knew what kind of specific bait to use to catch the kind of fish that were in that river. Hear this, the enemy, the devil, the adversary of our souls is like a veteran fisherman who watches his fish, adapts his bait to his prey, and knows in what seasons and times the fish is most likely to be caught. And you and I are that little fish seeing the bait that's so tempting and it hooks us every time. For so many of us Christians in the United States, the bait, the temptation is being right. There's no better drug than being right. Come here, we're right, they're wrong. We're good, they're bad. 
It is this being right mentality that is the root of our self-righteousness. Do you want to know where this self-righteousness plays out the most? Do you want to know where this certainty that we're right and everyone else is wrong? Do you want to know where it's most prevalent for Christians in the United States right now? Politics. Oh no, you better not go there. Is he going to go there? Yeah, yeah I am. Okay. Because the bait is perfect. All of the media that we consume, all of the politicians that we listen to, they're feeding us self-righteousness. We're right, they're wrong. We're good, they're bad. We're holy, they're evil. It just feeds our craving of self, and we don't even know that we've been hooked. And this is tough stuff, right? The last three years, to say the least, has been pretty difficult. Our society is in pain. People are angry. People are suffering. People are grieving. People are traumatized. And instead of bringing people together, politics is deepening the divide. We're more divided now as a nation than we have been in any other time of my life. It seems that dialogue is a thing of the past. And now we live in a world defined by my camp versus your camp, in or out, for or against, friend or foe, ally or enemy. And we write off people who we're called to love. Whatever the other party is for you, you're called to love them. See, as Christ followers, we should be different. There's this moment in the life of Jesus that illustrates this point. A man approaches Jesus asking for help. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And at that time, it was not uncommon for rabbis to settle disputes with families or villages. But Jesus responds emphatically, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? Okay, so here's the question. Why did Jesus reject this man's request for help? Why wouldn't Jesus, who possessed divine wisdom and authority, judge between the two brothers? Just give us the answer. And to answer these questions, it's important to recognize the form of the man's request. He did not ask Jesus for help dividing the dead father's estate. No, instead he asked Jesus to side with him against his brother. In the man's mind, innocent guilt was already established. He was right and his brother was wrong. The man merely wanted Jesus to use as leverage against his brother and Jesus would have none of it. I think oftentimes we believe just like this man. We employ Jesus as a weapon against ones who disagree with us. We essentially declare, well, I think you're wrong and so does Jesus. But let's call it out for what it is. It's a defensive move that keeps us from having to do the hard work of self-examination. It quickly shuts down the inconvenient possibility that I might be in error or that my own perspective might be warped in some way. It also prevents me from empathizing with my opponent or recognizing any element of truth in his or her position. Because if God agrees with me, then I don't have to change. This is arrogant. This is anti-Jesus. Like the man in our story, we often want Jesus to join our campaign, 
bless our agenda, defend our position, but let's remember Jesus is king, not us. We center our lives around him, not the other way around. And Jesus doesn't fit into our categories of right, left, liberal, progressive, Christian, conservative. Jesus never fit into the categories of his day as well. The people were amazed because he defied the expectations of the parties of his day. He exploded boundaries and shows us a better way. When we come to Jesus, we want to know, are you conservative or liberal? Are you Republican or are you Democrat? Are you for us or for our enemies? And Jesus says, neither. The question is not, which side are you on? The question from Jesus is, are you on my side? Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not a Democrat. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And to reduce him to a political party that will be a blip on the map of human history is idolatrous. And then there's this, right? We forget that during our oh-so-short history as a country, several of our political parties have just disappeared, okay? They're no longer even around. Is there anybody watching this online or listening online that's from the Whig Party? How about any Federalists? Are there any Federalists listening online right now? Here's what we forget. We're so short-sighted. There were entire political parties in our nation's history that were so adamant about certain things that we've got all the answers, and then they just kind of went away. So here's the question. Why would we, as followers of an eternal king, allow ourselves to be divided by temporary political systems and politicians and leaders and political platforms? Why would we allow ourselves to be divided by lesser kings? Let's be different. Let's shine. Let's not take that bait of self-righteousness. Now, throughout this series, I get that I'm being harsh on us Christians, okay? I am, I get it. Uh, it's not because I don't like Christians or the church, it's because I love them. But I think it's also important to point out um, you know, positive examples, okay? Positive examples of saints throughout history and even now that show the beauty of God's kingdom. This Christ-like posture and heart for the redemption of humanity. Today, I wanna to end our time talking about Bartolome de las Casas, okay? Someone who lived 500 years ago. Bartolome's father quickly signed up for Columbus's second voyage. And in 1502, Bartolome made his own first trip to Hispaniola, okay, present-day Haiti or the DR, Dominican Republic. He later studies in Rome for the priesthood, and then he returned to the New World where he lived and served as a chaplain in the Spanish conquest of Cuba. Though a priest, he also benefited greatly from the conquest as the owner of a plantation with Indian indentured laborers, slaves. While in the New World, de las Casas witnessed horrible atrocities done in the name of Jesus to the indigenous people. In his writings, he recounts the story of an Indian prince in Cuba who was burned alive. 
As he was tied to a stake, a Franciscan friar spoke up to him of God and asked him whether he would like to go to heaven and there enjoy glory and eternal rest. When the prince asked whether Christians also went to heaven and he was assured that this was so, he replied without further thought that he did not wish to go there, but rather to hell so as not to be where the Spaniards were. This was how Christians were known in the West Indies 500 years ago. In 1514, at the age of 30, Las Casas gave up his lands and the Indians that he possessed, and he pronounced that he would refuse absolution to any Christian who would not do the same. Friar Bartolome de Las Casas, who was so affected by what he had seen during the early decades of the conquest, devoted the rest of his life to raising an outcry and bearing witness before an indifferent world. For more than 50 years, he traveled back and forth between the New World, the court of Spain, fighting for indigenous people. Despite powerful opposition, Las Casas won a hearing in Spain and he was named Protector of the Indians. With the passion of an Old Testament prophet, he proclaimed, the screams of so much spilled human blood have now reached heaven. The earth can no longer bear such steeping in human blood. The angels of peace and even God, I think, must be weeping. Hell alone rejoices. He wrote, I leave in the Indies Jesus Christ, our God, scourged and afflicted and beaten and crucified not once, but thousands of times. In a Christian culture of pride, power, self-righteousness, and riches, there will always be a remnant. This is Christianity. And if we lived out our commitment to Jesus in ways to bless others, and if we lived out our commitment to Jesus in ways that listen and learn and love others rather than being certain about everything else. Somehow, I think more people will think that we're right. Let's make loving others our Q-tips. Let's make loving others our Kleenex. May the word Christian and blessing the world become the very same thing. God, I pray that this is so. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week is the finale of our Big Reputation sermon series, and we can't wait. We hope you have an amazing week. Go and be Jesus to the world around you. Grace and peace.